0: Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. This is the second episode of our second season of SF Crossing the Gulf, and today we're going to be discussing one of Karen's choices, which is the recently Crawford award-winning collection Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck.
1: Yes, and I need to give a couple of um, well, sort of warnings, full disclosure kind of comments First of all, I, I am one of the people who gave a blurb for that um, collection, and it is also one of the works being considered for the Tiptree Award, um, among many other nominated works, and I am on the jury for that.
0: So that's that's um, just a um, little bit of information there. And I should also point out, I was on the Crawford jury that awarded Jagannath the Crawford Award, so yeah, we'll both be a little circumspect, I'm sure, about the, the deliberations that are going on in, in both those juries. <laughs>
1: In other words, the opinions you hear are entirely my, mine own and no one else's.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Amen for that. But so, Karen, do you want to kick us off with why you chose this and, and maybe a little bit of a summary?
1: Yes, indeed. Well, one of the reasons that I chose it was that it's, it's so beautifully different. That's the best way to put it. You know already that one of my key interests in speculative fiction um, lies with works that use myth and use it well. And when I say they use myth, there's myth in the sense of you're taking a, a known bit of folklore or a folktale and you're expanding or adapting or doing some kind of riff on it. But there are also writers who manage to take something that has a sense of the mythic. It's, um, how to put it? It's not that you would be able to find a precise story that had that plot, or had those characters, but the characters and the kind of plot are themselves so, uh, so much a part of, of, of human story that you feel some kind of connection to them. Sense, that's what I mean by the sense the mythic. So this collection of stories, to me, definitely tapped into that, and best of all, they tapped into it from not our usual sources. We know what our usual sources for perspective fiction are. I'm not going to go into that because we've heard this argument many times before. But these, this is not the usual sources. Um, we're coming from the Scandinavian perspective. And we are looking at something which is a, a very a fascinating mix of the contemporary and the ancient. Because uh, many of the stories... Um, well I shouldn't say many I say about half the stories have a sense of 20th 21st century about them and then this glimmer of some kind of other world parallel running beside it so I got lots of Twilight Zone vibes from it (laughs) (laughs) I got I got lots of um, Hitchcock vibes from it and and I really appreciated it um I'll, I'll just finish off by saying I mean a summary is kind of hard to do because there are several stories and we're going to talk about them and some of the themes that we see in them. But for me, the first story, which is called Beatrice, is about a, a man and a machine and the machine is in some way sentient. And we we know this trope. We know the trope of the the, the ship's captain who refers to the ship as she and, and has this kind of deep relationship that Almost, you know, surpasses anything he could have with a woman, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, oh yes, I've seen this before. And then it took a little, ver- a little veering off, and I was like, oh no, wait a minute, I haven't <laughs> seen that. <laughs> and that, and that from the get go caught my attention. So that's that's what I have to say about that for now.
0: Yeah, I have to admit that opening story, Beatrice. Um, maybe we can just start there. Mm-hmm. You know, the just as as Karen said, it's um, it's a man who falls in love. With a, an airship, and it, it's got this kind of steampunk feel to it, you know, where where the very steampunk,
1: yes, yeah, the mm-hmm.
0: the concept that a that a person could individually own an airship in this kind of alternate past. But he fell in love with a show model, and he wasn't able to get that model, so he buys another airship that's the same model but not the same, you know, the same unit. And he's he he's like, well, okay, maybe I can learn to love this one, right? Mm-hmm. And then eventually they have, well, let's see, then there's another person who moves in. She's got, she's another human, but she's got a relationship with a printing machine? Something like that, yes. Mm -hmm. Another large industrial piece of machinery. They end up sharing (laughs) a warehouse. Um, The man and the airship have a child, yes? Mm Mm-hmm. And the child ends up translating, and basically um, between you know the father who's human and the mother who's the airship, and basically says, you know, you're not even calling her by the right name. <laughs> yes, you've been raping and her and this all, entire time, and
1: it's all it all comes
0: crashing down. You know, it's all, all comes it's crashing all like... down, and the zeppelin <laughs> takes off, and mm-hmm. um, but I, I have to say, when I read the story again, it really is wonderful, and it is that twilight zone, but. I can, just reading this story, I was like, no wonder the Vandermeers love this woman so much. <laughs> this is so new weird. Yes. It's yes. got some indefinable quality about it that just it puts it smack in the core of, of the movement, quote unquote, that's called new weird.
1: hmm Yes. And and what I noticed as well is that the, the plot, occasionally when you look at the plot, the plot seems to be very simple and almost simplistic. But what is around the plot, the the detailed description of the environment, and and the characters is just so evocative that you're you're almost happy that all you have is a little bit of plot because that's what you need to you need to savor all the rest of it.
0: Right, right, yeah. The plot is very bare bones that you hang everything else on and see everything else that matters. Mm-hmm, yeah, the mm-hmm. affect of it is really, I think, the most important thing. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I admit this may not be for everybody. This may not be for everybody. And it does, I did think to myself that it calls into question or maybe at least raises as discussion once more what a short story should be. Uh, That's something that I'm still, you could say, working out for myself. What makes a successful short story? Because very much the stories in this collection are not so much about plot as they are about taking a very simple um, scene or idea or, or, or sequence of events and then just, just dressing them up in a way that's very beautiful and very evocative and makes you go, oh, wait, I didn't see it like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I feel like um, I feel like Tidbeck's collection has some, some elements in common with Ted Chang. I was waiting for you to say that,
1: sorry.
0: I managed to go a whole seven minutes. Without, without saying Ted Chang, I'm really proud of myself.
1: Yes, and, and everybody should know by now that we are Ted Chang fangirls. We do love his work, and we do tend to reference it quite, quite often. But, um, but yes, it, it is. Well, you tell me. You tell me why you got that feel from it.
0: Okay, well, I, I think we'll get into this a little more directly when we talk about Rebecca, probably. Okay. Oh, yes, yes. Because Rebecca, to me, is one of the standouts in mm-hmm. in the collection i 'm putting it i personally i'll i 'll put this right out there i 'm putting it on my hugo ballot, so really okay okay um, but one of the things overall, if you look not just at Beatrice or not just Rebecca, but over this entire collection there's a feeling of um no that 's the wrong way to put it. Let me start over it's it's very intellectual it's, yes it's very intellectual and and even though we've, we've been talking, we've been using words like affect and creepy and, you know, these different things, there's a real emotional distance. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you get that sense between the narrative and the things that are happening? There's a, there's a coolness to it. Coolness. Coolness exactly to it. And
1: it's, it's funny because it's not emotional distance, possibly. And there are one or two where I would say, yes, that is the case. But in a couple of other cases, I almost found it not so much an emotional distance, but the distance you get when you really are out of your depth. Mm. I don't know if if, if that like, if I'm making clear the subtle distinction there.
0: I'm not. I'm talking to...
1: about. Well, I'll, I'll I'll try to give an example. It's like it's almost like the feeling I get when I read um, Jane Austen's um, characters having a romance they seem so out of touch with their actual feelings sometimes. So you have a sense where it's, it's not so much that the writing is implying emotional distance, but that the people within are themselves not fully connected with what's going on or not fully understanding what's going on, and that's what gives the sensation of emotional distance in some of them.
0: Right, maybe the characters themselves don't understand uh-huh. and can't express for themselves... But of course, you know, in some, in some, for some short story writers, they would take it upon themselves with the narration to bridge that gap.
1: But it works better for this one that you don't. Oh yeah, no, no,
0: it's a completely legitimate style. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. and again, I think she uses it to just amazing uh, power. Yes. mm -hmm. Um, but it is, you know, it is a choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um... And and again, you know you see things like that a little bit and and I'll come back to Ted Chang's exhalation, you know where where yeah this a it's a very you know it is a very intellectual i mean um the guy doesn't the narrator doesn't really go into the tragedy or the the emotion of tragedy of the fact that his entire world, sorry his or her its entire world is is coming slowly to its end. Mm-hmm. Um, he chooses instead to sorry, it chooses again um, <laughs> to focus on a more intellectual and, and more sense of wonder right, and in
1: other words the issues are almost bigger, aren't they? they're yeah. not so much
0: personal as bigger yeah, and again, it's a choice of where the narrator puts the focus mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Tidbeck I think keeps the focus on that sense of unease yes, without yes. going all the way into horror Mm-hmm, that's D- right. DC room.
1: That's that's what I meant when I guess I spoke about the Twilight Zone thing because yeah. on the one hand, you have surroundings that, well, for the first part of the book, I should say, you start off with surroundings that feel familiar. Right. And then something unusual happens and you're just sort of like, okay, I'm a bit off kilter now, but let's keep going. hmm and, and the funny thing about it is that the characters that are within the story are themselves off kilter. Yeah, Yes, that's
0: that's very true. Although okay, yeah. actually, you know, you, you bring that up and I hadn't noticed that before, but now that I'm looking at the table of contents, I hadn't realized how much it starts out relatively mundane, with I think Beatrice being a slight exception and uh, moves into the much,
1: it much. It does. Bigger. It does. And I appreciate that because um when I when I kind of group them, I note that you have the Right. When I look when I look at the at the stories, they go from they they're they're talking about the mundane interfacing with the the eerie but they go about it in different ways so on the one hand you will have for example somebody who's in a very mundane situation who then slips into something that is is eerie but almost seems to accept it somewhat that's like hersetorberg for example okay where that one is another one about a ship but it's almost a situation where the captain becomes the ship in a way, you know. This is someone with a flying machine again. But at some point in flight, the the mechanical bits just sort of float away and he's the one left flying. And again, not, not plot as far as you can see, but just very evocative in, in the scenery and so forth. Then you have the, the ones that I call the real, you know, kind of twilight area, borderlands area. Um some letters. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Reindeer Mountain and Augusta Prime. Um Augusta Prime is interesting, especially because Augusta Prime begins the really weird stuff.
0: Yeah, I was about to say <laughs> I I was like, if you say some letters and reindeer mountain and Augusta Prime, I'm like, ah, one of these but you is see not like the others. <laughs> but but but
1: let me explain you pass from one world into another in all three of those stories there's some letters the the the, the 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 sort of scenario there is that um it's this woman um who's reminiscing about her her parents, her father who raised her, her mother who basically walked out on them, and then as she's talk as she's sort of having these flashbacks these letters um you know talking about her her childhood, you begin to realize that her mother wasn't really human
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the location where she is. The sun, eventually, doesn't quite rise, so it's it's a literal twilight. Right. And and she just ends off by saying, "I think my mother is coming." you really just had this, and, and as I said, it starts off with a very, very normal, very mundane. I'm going to, you know, go to this place and and um, stay here for a little bit, and so forth, and and you hear these childhood memories, and then it turns into I'm entering into another world, which is actually part of my birthright that I never knew about. And Reindeer Mountain is almost is almost the same thing but with an additional message because there are...
0: Wait, quick there, question. Reindeer sorry. Mountain has to do with the wedding dress and the Vitra and British Holiday yes. Village. Mm-hmm.
1: That's the one. British, okay. British Holiday Village is the one with the writer.
0: With the writer, exactly.
1: Yes. So so Reindeer Mountain has these two girls and, as you say, this wedding dress. And the the the, the contrast there is that you have a similar scenario of a girl that goes off and finds that there are these... Shall we call them elves? They're kind of like elves. No, no, because
0: let's call them Vitra because they haven't. They okay. have own Their name.
1: <laughs> they're Vitra, but they look a lot like elves. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, let's let's say they're they're folk of the twilight. They're I don't know if you can quite say fair folk or what have you, but they're not quite human. Mm-hmm. And again, there's this family that has this sort of blood connection to them, and one of them, one of these two girls, wants to go off with them. To the point where again she she puts on this this dress, which is to her almost this signal to them or this talisman because it belonged to her um sorry her grandmother is it either grandmother or great grandmother yes who who again had this connection to the vitra, so you know she goes out and 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 they walk right past her and go to her go to the other girl and lead her off right and it, and that to me was so telling because if some letters was all about you know. You you can't escape your blood. Reindeer Mountain really underscored that. Where it was like, no, you don't get there by just wishing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's 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 it doesn't it doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter how you you know what incantations you might choose to say. You know they know who they're coming for. They they know who already belongs there. So, so that was, those were the two where you go from the mundane world into this, this, this strange world. Why I grouped Augusta Prime with that. Wait,
0: wait, wait. Before you move to Augusta Prime, why okay. not group Brita's Holiday Village in that?
1: Um, Brita's Holiday Village, I actually have grouped with Pirate. Yeah, I would I would
0: put all of them in the same group that you're talking about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but these, it doesn't matter. We can we can have as we can have different groupings. We can have overlaps. Oh yeah, it yeah,
0: know. But okay, so go on to Augusta Prime because I think that might yeah. shed a different light on the grouping than what I'm thinking.
1: Okay, well, Augusta Prime, the best way I can describe Augusta Prime is as if you went into.
0: Alice in Wonderland, but it was really sinister. <laughs> oh yeah, no, they, it, like, and it's not even, I mean, it, I don't even think that's subtle. I mean, there's croquet being played, <laughs> yes. and, and when you are playing croquet in a fantasy land and hurting people, then it is Alice in Wonderland. Pretty much. But let's just say this is not the PG version, is. this is not even the PG-13 version.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and So you have this, this very strange world, this very strange, intense, vivid, and in many ways callous kind of world. It's 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 portrayed in a way that I've seen before in fantasy fiction, where they portray the the, the fairies as being very very cruel and very um, very much disconnected from emotion, except the kind of emotion that would cause harm and find joy in it. Let's say right, absolutely. Um, and and then there comes a visitor to the court, and this visitor, um, I have to glance again at what the Wait, name is
0: are you talking about the person with the watch yes yeah because he's not much, so much of a, as a of a visitor as a corpse
1: no 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 sorry not the person with the watch I'm talking about the one at the end that she oh. asked the
0: watch to okay okay fair enough
1: right because um but but um but you should have mentioned the watch because I should mention the watch what it does is it starts the main character Augusta mhm questioning what is time
0: right because this in this fantasy world time had simply not been a factor
1: um it had not been a factor it it did not if there was such a thing it was not working in the way that we see time is working
0: right and i did think that the sense of alienation of that being outside time or having time work differently i thought again the the <laughs> Tidbeck's style, I thought, was able to bring that forward and alienate it very effectively.
1: Yes, yes. So you, you really do, when you start the story and you, not, you don't realize exactly why things are as strange as they are, you really do feel a sense of complete and utter disorientation. Yeah. But then when you realize that you are basically having described to you a world in which time does not work the way you think it might, it begins to make a very odd kind of sense. So she begins to question the nature of time, and then what happens is that the visitor, who I was referring to, a stranger um, to the court, called uh, a I thought Jin, which is of course the the um, your your Arabic fantasy. Um, Arabic and Persian, from, right? From the from the genie or the jinn or whatever you wish to call them.
0: I, I made the same but, assumption. yeah.
1: But basically, this is somebody who is assumed to. Know everything. They're literally said, it is said of them, those creatures know everything. So Augusta asks the question, I would like to know the nature of time. And that changes everything because her answer does not come simply in the form of um, words or explanations, it comes in the form of an example. <laughs> and suddenly she finds herself in the mundane world in in the world where time does run as we expect it to run. So hers is the opposite for me for, from Reindeer Mountain in some letters where she is actually thrust out into the ordinary world. And that's what I mean when I say I group them all together because it's all um, about transitions.
0: Okay, okay. No, I see. And then so in, in letters it's hinted at in Reindeer Mountain it happens to the sister and in mm-hmm. Augusta it happens in reverse but very personally. Yes. Okay. Have you um I I don't have you gotten a chance to ever read Farah Mendelssohn's Rhetorics of Fantasy? I have not. She, I have heard much about it, but I have not read it yet. Yeah, no worries. Um but she uh she introduces a taxonomy and and the taxonomy makes a certain amount of sense, although, you know, you can quibble about any individual example, but um, you know, there's a, there's a kind called a portal. Mm-hmm. Fantasy where you know you move specifically from one world to the other. Most often you move from the mundane world to the um to the fantastic world. Yes. And and you're right, Augusta Prime ends with that portal in reverse. Um and, and the genie or the, the Genea is doing her no favors. <laughs> that certainly does not right. have her best <laughs> interest in mind when 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 it does that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because
1: that's her disorientation now as 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 challenging as the world without time may have been for us to observe and see it was still what Augusta was acc- accustomed to, and um you know it was it was so funny because when Jenea says to her, "Your kind can't bear that question right it was It was literally a case of you know there are people that you can't even you can't even begin to explain them what time is because immediately time is going to seize on them. And, and um, what was it she said here? Oh, well, Augusta says, I want to go home. You have to take me home again. And Jania says, so soon? Well, all you have to do is forget what you
0: have learned. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's and again, it just continues that tradition of cruelty.
1: Yes. And the final line, of course, and do try to hurry if you want to make it back. You're not getting any younger.
0: <laughs>
1: that was just a back slap. <laughs> so, oh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something. There's something very satisfying about a lot of the dialogue in these stories. I have to say.
0: Oh yes, it's, it's very, um, very crafted, very, mm-hmm. very deliberate. Yeah, there's, there's just, there's that feeling. Not a word out of place,
1: precisely. And, and I have to say, it's not. There's, there's no slang. It, you couldn't call it precisely conversational. It's certainly not colloquial. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you really do have this sense of. People say this. You know, this is this is not th- th- because their, their books I've read, their stories I've read, where there's a particular kind of literary language where you accept that people don't actually say this in real life.
0: Right, right.
1: But but not not in these stories. It really is a sense, even though it's a very, as you say, well crafted and and very and very clear, clear in the sense that mm, here again and. I've been exposed to this because of coming from Caribbean standard English. We don't even realize the extent to which we incorporate slang into, into our works. Our, slang is not perhaps a, the right word, but particular, peculiar turns of phrase that are not familiar to other standard Englishes. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And I find it fascinating that her, her dialogue is so, let's use the word clean, until, of course, I consider that you are talking about an author who is not writing in her native tongue.
0: Right, right. Now, I'm trying to remember. She, she's fluent in both. She hasn't a good afterword where she talks about that. Mm-hmm, she's mm-hmm. fluent in both. She actually went to Clarion. Yes. And um, and I'm trying to remember. Did she translate these herself? for Herself? Um, I think, and I do have to
1: check here, there are... There were a couple that began in her, in, in Swedish, that she translated but I got the impression that a couple of them may have actually been written in English from the beginning.
0: But yeah, I mean, it's, it's masterfully done and um, but maybe you, you use the word formal and there's a way in which I think that applies to every story in this collection. Did I use the word formal? Either you did or I did. I think, was, I think it was you. I think it was you. With
1: respect to the language? Yeah, yeah. I use the word clean. Oh, I use the word not using slang or colloquialism. So yeah, I can see how you... But, but I didn't quite mean... If I use the word formal, I didn't quite mean formal in the sense of... Formal to me literally suggests that you are elevating your language according to a
0: particular type of occasion. I'm talking about something that's literally stripped down... Well, no, because I, I think I'm riffing off your uh, off the word formal and thinking of the the distinction between formal and informal. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. And and every story here I would describe as formal. Okay, in I see. in that it is not interested in making friends. It is not interested <laughs> in in you know, hey, come on and and have a drink and hang out in my lounge. This is a lot more. They, they don't ingratiate themselves. Right, right. And again, yeah. I, I I love the style, but. You know, but again, I think it applies to every story here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I think that comes back to my sense of distance. The, that's the word that just kept popping up in my head. Every, t- every story, every time I was writing down a description, the word distance mm-hmm. um, um, kept resonating for me.
1: And when you said distance, I do also wonder to myself, hmm... How much that is a function of the language that we're seeing because if it is if it is so stripped down if it is so devoid of these whole cultural references and slang and, and phrases we're accustomed to is that what also helps to create the sense of distance oh it, it must
0: be it must be mm-hmm. you know because again the the linguistic choices go in so much to creating that that sense of style
1: right that may be why, although I do feel a sense of distance, I don't necessarily feel it from the language. Because understand that any time I read um, something from the U.S. or U.K., I have to make kind of a mental adjustment anyway.
0: Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might come from me and and being more used to being—I don't—you'd almost say catered to as. <mean>.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm accustomed to seeing writers from your background writing stories, let's just put it that way.
0: Fair enough, fair
1: uh, enough. Yeah. C- catered to suggest it's an unfair advantage, but, well, again, but it's, you, just,
0: it's just the way things are. As soon as you start un- unpacking the privileged backpack, uh, <laughs> you know, th- there uh-huh. I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I'm, I'm really, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Are, 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 do you feel like you've done the finished what you have to say on language?
1: Yes, yes, I I would say so. I was just really curious, something you said earlier. Um, You said Rebecca was um, one that stood out for you. It was not the one that stood out for me, though, but I wanted to discuss with you what Uh, you found. uh,
0: But I wanted to, instead of going back to Rebecca, would you mind skipping forward to Jagannath? Oh, no problem.
1: Yes, that's true. That makes sense because we've been talking about how we start off very mundane, then we have some transitional stories, but we didn't plunge into... Um, the, the, real, the real odd
0: world The real strange and, and dangerous and, and different world Well one of the things We have to skip over Aunts Which is actually set explicitly In the same world as Augusta Prime But we should come back to that But mm-hmm. I wanted When you talked about the portal aspect Of Augusta Prime Where she gets dragged into the mundane world And we mm-hmm. started talking about portal fantasies um, You know as a, as a type a little bit Jagannath is science fictional in fact, it's more science, purely science-fictional, I'd say, than any other story in the book. hmm And I, I'll summarize it, although this is doing damage to the story the way I'm going to summarize it, because a lot of these things, you know, are developed. It, it's one of those science-fictional stories where revealing the world-building is part of the mystery of the story. Precisely. Um, but what, he, what it comes down to is that there's a, a ship, completely self con- well, mostly self-contained, and it's walking across the landscape of a post-apocalyptic Earth. Um, there the creatures inside the ship might might as well be inside a generation starship. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only world they've ever known. They don't. They aren't aware of there being an outside. Mm-hmm. And and this the our viewpoint character um, is born in a crash. You know, she's an artificial being. Uh, she's nursed by the nursery environment and the and the nursery attendant. Um, and then she she's born to be an engineer. She goes out to be in the engineering room. But then the, the machine starts to stop. And she goes up to try and talk to the machine in kind of the head. Mm-hmm. And she finds out that, that you know, the, uh, the previous captain had died. There's no replacement. The machine is failing. And she has a dialogue with the machine, learns a little bit about the outside. Mm-hmm. And in the end, she's... I believe basically the sole survivor, and she gets, you might almost say, decanted <laughs> yes. in, into the outside. Mm-hmm. And that's a science fictional version of the fantasy portal. Ah. And it's not commonly done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the places it was done was in the 1920s in a story that's one of my all-time favorite SF stories of all time called The Machine Stops by E.M. Forrester.
1: Okay. Um, oh, there really is nothing new under the sun, is
0: there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it feels like cheating to go back to 1920-something, but I, I read mm-hmm. that that story in a uh, Gardner-Dozois collection of, you know, best SF of the 20th century. My God, I must have read it when I was 20 you know, if I wasn't even younger. And mm-hmm. um, it just knocked my socks off. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and reading Jagannath, you know, really put me in mind of that in a good way, in a good way. Not in a, oh, this has been done before, but in a, oh, hey, that's a really good riff on that theme.
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, but what I, one thing you didn't mention that I want to ask you if is also part of, of the earlier work that you mentioned. The the fact is the ship is like the is is when you say the ship decants the sole survivor out. Did you also make reference to the fact that the ship is in fact considered his mother?
0: No, that's that's definitely Tidbeck's own mm-hmm. spin on things. Okay. You know, in the Be- machine stops. I should I should summarize for those who haven't read it. Um, it's the world. You know, the Earth has become this kind of very hive. Very, um, everybody stays in their own chamber, um, Mm -hmm. and everything they need is brought to them and they have a kind of internet and they have, you know, entertainment and they're just brought food, you know, and it's all mechanized. They never actually (laughs) connect with another, they don't physically connect with another person. This sounds like Asimov. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's, I mean, Asimov Reddit,
1: um,
0: And the machine starts to decay and nobody, you know, the mechanisms start to go. Nobody understands what's going on or how to fix it because they've all, you know, not been educated that way. And mm-hmm. there's, and there's one character, somebody's son, who who decides, that's it, I'm getting out of here. And he actually climbs up to the surface and everyone's like, oh, you can't go to the surface. And, and he's like, ha ha, I'm doing it anyway. And he, mm-hmm. he hooks up with a few other, you know, lone, uh, independent humans up there.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: But... They, <laughs> To me, the, the core of The Machine Stops is is that um, Forrester does a brilliant job of describing the heart-pounding terror that would come if all of a sudden the entire world that you understood, the entire world that worked to support you, stopped.
1: So it really is completely a warm story.
0: Very much so. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although he that... was, I'm not even sure he conceived it that way. <laughs> but it, it uh... absolutely is that.
1: Hmm. No, no, here's 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 the funny thing because when you when you started talking, I actually had to go back and glance again at the end of the story because I there was something I got from the end that I don't know is correct. And I'm going to sort of, you know, put myself here on the line, possibly embarrass myself. As I said, in Jaganda, the, the ship is referred to as mother. Mm-hmm. And when when we say ship even, this is really a completely inorganic entity. And there was something in the ending that suggested to me that that sole survivor was destined to become the next mother.
0: Seemed like she might be able to find another ship. You know what I mean? Oh, I was... Hmm. Because I'm not Hmm. necessarily seeing that she'd be able to get to be a, a ship herself.
1: How did how did mother originally become a ship?
0: That's a good question. Um she talks about being made. Mm-hmm. Um but I was not clear on where that might have come from.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You see, that is, I have to admit, that's the kind of story I appreciate because you realize you have to read it two, three, four times and you're still not entirely sure. And maybe you're not meant to be sure. So that's
0: okay. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, so, so she says, so the, the viewpoint character asks, sees a city and says, what's that? And the mother replies, cities, your ancestors used to live there. Um, oh, here's more important viewpoint character rack says where are we going and she says, mother says looking for a mate i need fresh genetic material my system is not completely self-sufficient right and then rack asks are there more of you and she says of sorts There are none like me but i have cousins that roam the steps none of them are good company not like my children
1: um, right so holding on to that and then at the very end it says here, in the bleak, like a long shape on many legs approached. When it came close, Rack saw it was much smaller than mother, perhaps three or four times Rack's length. Okay, just, just making it a little shorter here. Uh, after a while, it turned around, depositing a, a gelatinous sack on the ground. It slowly backed away. And basically, Rack goes and eats it. She eats the sack. Mm-hmm. And it's got these wriggling little tiny things that are tiny in her She swallows them whole. And then there's this thing where it says, I mean, no, she ate till she was sated, and then crouched on the ground, scratching at her sides, her arms and legs tingled. She had a growing urge to run and stretch her muscles, to run and never stop, which is basically what the mothership did. Oh, OK. Okay. So I got I got the feeling that um, what the the original mothership was looking for was, in fact, what approached Raka at the end, which was that additional genetic material that she needed to Ah. to be, as she said, you know, she's not fully self-sufficient. Fresh genetic material needed was in that um, sack that was deposited.
0: Oh, and if you go back a page, um, Rack eventually fell asleep. She dreamed of legs sprouting from her sides, her body elongating and dividing into sections, taking a sinuous shape. She ran over the grass, legs in perfect unison, muscles and vertebrae stretching and becoming powerful. The sky was no longer terrible, Warm light caressed the length of her scales. Yes, yes, there oh, you go. Oh, okay. I think I had been clinging to subconsciously clinging to an idea of Rack as human-ish. Oh, okay. And <laughs> I think now I'm seeing how much that isn't true. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. like your reading. That gives it a much more optimistic ending, doesn't it? Well,
1: it it does, and and what it does for me is that um what What amazed me about this and also about ants, although this is far more cheerful than ants <laughs> um you have you have a truly alien depiction here you have you have something that 's not at all human, but you have it talking about very human things, which is to say um sort of motherhood reproduction family well and um, even the um the very
0: last thing that mother says when she she ooh. says um my system is de- degraded past the point of repair. The last thing she says is, Goodbye, my daughter. Please use mm-hmm. the exit with the green lights. Yes. So that, that speaks <laughs> yes. to a human design once upon a time.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There you go. So, so yeah, there's this, there's this interesting thing where you, you, as I said, you start off with a mundane world and these slightly eerie effects. And then you go into a completely different, changed, alien world but with these deeply human things sort of just sort of threading through it. And um and those are in the end of the transitional ones and the transitional stories in between. So I I did find as a collection it worked well for me because it had that way of easing you into things. Yeah, and of building.
0: hmm Definitely building. So maybe now we should go back and talk about ants.
1: Yes. That one was a little scarier because I don't think that one had a happy
0: ending. No, it had a very not happy ending. <laughs> I'm not sure you could read that as having a happy ending ever, in any reading. I know yeah. lots of readings are valid, but I didn't think a, a happy ending would be a valid reading of Ants. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take do the honors on summarizing? Well, basically with Ants, and, and the Ants
1: do have a, a kind of a, a mention or a cameo, can you say, perhaps, in yeah. Augusta Prime? Yeah. And what they are, mm. <laughs> are they? it's so it's so hard it is so hard to explain, but it's there are these three huge women, and they are they are constantly fed they're fed they they are fat and they are fattened, and it appears to be that um they have you know various girls who come and serve them and what they do is they just they just bring food and they tend to them and they they clean them and they take care of them but that is the whole point and purpose of this scene the three fat women eating and being fattened and oh goodness it sounds so bizarre even as i say it doesn't it (laughs) um so but you get the impression as you read it that and 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 trust me the description is so vivid when you read this thing it's like n- nothing is spared in terms of imagery yeah it's it's but it's gruesome in some ways gruesome and vivid but you get the impression that between the aunts and the nieces the nieces being of course the the ones who serve them there is this sense of they have had this sort of thing going on for a very long time so then <clears throat> What
0: happens Well, we get to see that. one full cycle right before the change comes, right, and the cycle is one of the aunts basically gets so large that she expires, mm-hmm. her body's broken down, and one of the nieces becomes an aunt,
1: yes, so she right. kind of splits open, and they when their body splits open, you know they they
0: basically. Oh, no, you're right, you're right. There's an aunt inside the body. <laughs> right. Not that a niece is promoted, but it's an, an aunt is inside the fattened body of the previous aunt. Right.
1: So they, they take out the new one, this, this, um, this kind of almost embryonic aunt, you know, place her aside very gently. And break and down
0: the body of yes. the old aunt to feed to. Yes. So it's a closed cycle.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, so it goes into cannibalism, and it's really creepy. But it, you know, and, and they just, you know, nothing was wasted. That's, that's the expression. So it's all very, very cyclical. And the cycle seems to be purely about eating and perpetuating. Right. And then, I'm suddenly, right. <laughs> um, what happens is that an ant expires and splits and there's nothing inside. And there's She no... doesn't even split. Oh, She's okay, just that's right. Expires.
0: Sorry,
1: that's right. Because they they actually no, that's right. They have to open up the body.
0: Right, right. And there's there's nothing inside. And then the nurses uh, are just completely. They keep trying to do what they've always done, mm-hmm. but now there's no. There's no purpose there's, to it. The
1: the cycle the cycle has been completely disrupted. So they do, in a way, what they do is is almost, it's it's almost a, a human picture of what people do anytime they have a system and that system breaks down. They try their best to approximate the system and hope that it will keep going.
0: Right, right.
1: So what they do is that they decide, well, okay, maybe we're the next ones. So they they start eating. Um, they they also um, do the whole breaking down the bodies of the ants into into a feast, and they start eating, and they even go as far as to you know and 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 they and they realize it's, it's not working, <laughs> so they even go as far as to take the skins of the previous ants and they wrap themselves up, and and they're they're waiting. And that's, and that's all that happens. They, they're basically waiting for the cycle to pick back up again. And that's how it ends.
0: Right. And now, check me on this, but I got the impression that the breakdown in the cycle was caused by Augusta coming by with the watch.
1: Ooh. Hang on. Oh. Oh, my goodness, you're right. <laughs> That basically it was introducing the ticking entropy. noise, first slow then faster amplified and filled the air and Aunt opened her eyes and listened, they listened to the ticking of the watch and that was the sound of their demise yeah.
0: got chills, got chills, got chills yeah. <laughs> and so basically it's oh. the, the addition of entropy into a closed system
1: oh Give me a moment i'm I'm having a moment here people just just give me a second <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. This is why we need to do the podcast together
0: <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect, yes, yeah, and that's so- what makes the two stories together I mean they're 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 and then when you add Jagannath in, where Rak tries, you know, J- Rak is actually able to successfully exit the mother and adapt. And in the aunts, you see this tragic portrait of people who absolutely cannot adapt.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. because because the introduction of time throws that entire system um, off its moorings, basically.
0: Right, right. And actually, I have to say, if you think about the way that aunts links entropy and time, it reflects a fairly nuanced understanding of what time actually is in our universe.
1: I'm glad that you said that. Go on, finish finish what you're saying, yes. But that's mostly finished.
0: Um, <laughs> okay. you know, but, but basically, for us, the way we perceive the universe, time is the direction of time follows the increase of entropy. Uh, mm. Officially, as a physicist, you cannot understand time in the absence of the concept of entropy. Yes. You know, that's not our intuitive understanding as, as humans, but that is what time means to, you know, a scientist.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, because the, the question has actually been asked in the physics, why does time, why is time in the direction it is? You know, the question, I can walk north or I can walk south, but I can't walk forward and back in time. It's not mm-hmm. like any other di- dimension. Right, mm-hmm. and the reason that time is the direction it is is because, well, to our best of our understanding, is because it's linked to the concept of entropy, mm-hmm. and entropy can only go, you know, in the closed system that is the universe, entropy can only go one way. So, and of
1: course, the the system of the ants before the introduction of time was actually not a system that supported energy because you had all this eating, and then you had these new ants. And then the new ants would eat the old ants and it was just that 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 was that was the cycle. So it wasn't really an entropy thing, it was very much a
0: closed cycle. Exactly. Exactly. It was an ideal closed cycle with no energy escaping to the outside.
1: Yes. But once you
0: yeah. inject entropy into that system when Augusta came by with her watch in the previous story, mm-hmm. you couldn't sustain that fiction anymore.
1: Yes. Yes. Now this is good. This is good and it's it's subtle. It's very subtle. Yeah, I
0: hadn't thought about it in those terms quite until we started talking. But, but yeah, now I'm liking it even more.
1: hmm hmm And this is why, although, as I said, the plot may seem spare, you have to dig a little deeper. You have to look at some of the layers. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that you like, refreshed me on that, the whole... Because it doesn't actually say Augusta Prime walks past. It never says the word Watch. It just says they didn't see the curious face pressed against the glass, a hand cradling a round metal object.
0: Well, see, I it, I, I made the connection because in the Augusta Prime story, it actually talked about—or sorry, Prima—it um, actually talked about her going over and seeing the aunts. Mm-hmm. So I,
1: but there was something in me. Yes, Augusta Prima. I think I was calling Augusta Prime by accident. My apologies, <laughs> um, but. I, I I knew that I saw that but there was something in me that was still because they're the
0: only two stories that are connected yeah all the other stories are totally standalone
1: so there was something in me that although I knew that it was definitely kind of set in the same world my mind was still very much separating them and that's why it, it did not strike me to to read that with greater significance than I did hmm yeah Poof. I tell you. Good stuff. Yes. And and I'm now glancing back at Augusta Prima to see where where she went past the yeah. and and the, the scary thing about it is that it is it is a tiny tiny what portion of a paragraph. Yeah. Where she's literally all she does is she's just wandering by. She just walks by. And um Augusta opened the watch, peeking at the clock face. The longest hand moves slowly, almost imperceptibly, and then she walks on. That little bit of that long hand uh, moving is the bit you then see later on. Least, the second story, the other story, where the cycle with the ants completely breaks down, all because of that longest hand moving slowly. That's it. Yeah, it's such a minor... such a little throwaway detail. If you read too fast, you'd miss it.
0: Okay, but it, it, you know, the, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I will admit, sometimes I feel like I read too sloppily, but that one actually just jumped out at me.
1: I think. Well, I'll be perfectly honest and say that many times I read too sloppily, but sometimes it can be as simple as you are looking for a particular outcome, Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: have a particular structure in your mind ready. Like I said, my mind was so much on the fact that all these other stories were standalones, that. I kept it in my head as something separate and that was my downfall. And uh, and also you almost you almost don't expect it. You almost don't expect it because as I said, all of these stories have in their descriptions of their environment such detail, such beauty, mm-hmm. that you never expect what appears to be something throwaway just to give you a sense of what the environment looks like to have significance in the later story. You're thinking to yourself, oh, look, you know, she's describing the court. She's describing the characters. She's describing, you know, this is, this is all for me to be able to picture what the main character is walking through. And meanwhile, she's quietly slipped in there. <laughs> the key, the, the central point to another story entirely.
0: I think that's extremely clever. It's No, it's good. It's good.
1: Oh. I feel as if we need to say something bad about her now. We've been entirely too gushing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if we move on to Rebecca, I don't think we're going to have much luck.
1: I Hey, I can say a few bad things about Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exaggerating slightly. But yes, let me, let me hear from you first why you would put it on your Hugo ballot, and I will counter with what I think should go on a Hugo ballot.
0: Okay, fair, fair. Um, okay, so Rebecca is a story, and it's... It's set in a in universe that immediately put me in mind of Ted Chiang's Hell is the Absence of God and Ken Wu's Single Bit Error, which we'll discuss later in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one where God is is a literal force. Uh, uh, God is made manifest. And God does random things um, that humans attempt to impose some rules or understanding on, but still end up being ram- random.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um the narrator of Rebecca is is the character Rebecca's only friend. That's how she describes herself. You know, that Rebecca's not a particularly easy person to be friends with. Um for various And months.
1: Rebecca Rebecca has very good reason not to be easy to be friends right, with because right. she's had an it extremely out, hard life.
0: <laughs> extremely hard life. So it turns out Rebecca was married and um at a certain point her husband um snapped and spent three days torturing her and it was only after 3 days that god smote you know god killed him in a in a strike of lightning or some other you know divine manifestation right mm-hmm. since then rebecca being completely understandably traumatized by this experience has been trying to kill herself mm-hmm. but the divine manifestations have always prevented her from successfully killing herself yeah and uh she's been you know talking about this to her friend for for as long as this has been going on and um and eventually rebecca herself snaps under the un- again understandable psychic um uh, tro- torture that she's been undergoing and she decides that the way to get god to finally kill her is to do the same thing to her friend that her husband did to her yes and that's basically the end of the story. Oh, it's also the beginning of the story, because the beginning of the story is basically, you know, there's Rebecca, and, there's, and or the smoldering remains of Rebecca, and here am I, tra- strapped to this bed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, for me, one of the things is that, you know, the ending is so chilling. Yes. <laughs> it's just so chilling. Very chilling. just like, oh my god, yeah. even though it was there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Somehow, at the end, it still just jumped out at me. You know, it's like, are you familiar with the uh, the Magician's Pen and teller?
1: I am actually, but I can't remember
0: anything recent. Okay, no, it's nothing recent. It's their shtick. They're they're magicians, but they always tell you how the magic works. Okay, okay, fair that's, that's mm-hmm. always been their thing. And and one of the, the it used to be, oh, it's a scandal, a magician revealing revealing their tricks, but um you know now now they're just entertainers uh Mm -hmm. as much as anybody and i i got to see them perform live once you know the cup and balls trick where you uh you know there's um there's balls and there's cups and and then you try and guess where the where the cups are and a good magician with sleight of hand can make anything happen with the cups and balls you try and guess where the ball is. Yeah, but the fundamental, the cups. The fun, fundamental gig is guess where the, where the ball is, right? Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. They do the cups and balls with plastic, clear plastic cups <laughs> and an aluminum foil ball. Okay. So you can see everything that's happening the whole time. And they're talking the whole time. Their patter, well, Penn's patter, <laughs> is extremely good. And, you know, he's telling you, Every step of the way, exactly what they're doing. But at the end of the trick, there's a potato. <laughs> and he told you saw the trick, you know the potato is coming, and then they do the clear thing and he's even telling you. And at the end of the trick, you're like, "Where the fuck did the potato come from?" <laughs> Even no. though they've telegraphed the whole thing, the way the art the way they're so good at what they do still mm-hmm. makes it surprising. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> what I got from Rebecca was that even though she told you right up front what she was going to do, by the end I was like, "Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so so that's that's my take on Rebecca. now, now you.
1: Well, <clears throat> No, I did I did very much get Ted Chang feels from this. Of course, yeah, you can't uh, not. And the very, the very same story you were talking about, Hell is the Absence of God and so forth. Um, the difference is that um, in Hell is the Absence of God, you were almost... <sighs> you were almost saved by a slight... We talked about distance before. There was almost a slight lightheartedness in it where you were able to frame it as, oh, this is definitely a world that not, doesn't exist, and, and could look at it almost as if you would look at a sitcom. You know what I mean? Sitcoms have their own kind of, of logic of how people behave that you realize doesn't apply to people in the real world and allows you to laugh at things that you might perhaps cry at in the real world. Um, there's something in Rebecca that was almost a little, a little too unrelentingly real it didn't have that little edge of, of, of distant humor mm. to, to allow me to step back a bit from it. Because uh, horrible things happen to Hell is the Ab- in Hell is the Absence Ab- of God as well. But there was something about the writing that allowed you to, to look at it as if it was
0: playing up on a stage. May whereas I, Sorry, go ahead. Well, may I suggest something? Uh, in Hell is the Absence of God, the, Lord, the role that God and the angels play is very much like a natural disaster. True, true. It, mm-hmm. it happens to everyone in the area regardless of their status.
1: Mm-hmm. Whereas
0: mm-hmm. obviously the interventions happening in um, Rebecca are more personal.
1: Well, they're more personal because we hear her side of it. But what was interesting to me is that, as you say, in Hell is the God. of God, you, you, they make it clear that Um, these are the consequences from these actions and the actions are across the board for everyone. Because there's so much of a focus on Rebecca, you don't know whether um, God does this for all people who try to
0: commit suicide or whether it's just for Rebecca. Right, right. Yeah, that is unclear.
1: So if it was a case of all people who try to commit suicide, this is what would happen to them in this particular world, in this particular manifestation of God, that would have given me a different feeling to the idea that Rebecca was almost being picked on in this way, where she's the only one who's not allowed to kill herself. So it still left for me a sense of a lack of resolution because um, Hell is the Abyss of God had its own internal logic and carried that to its natural conclusion, however slightly farcical that conclusion may have been.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But this one literally starts with a feeling of um, you know, God is doing this to her personally. She, she does something at the end so that God will listen to her, but you still don't know what the point was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, at no point do you understand the logic behind God's actions.
1: Yeah. In this and, 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 and that's so bizarre because as I said, how is the God? The logic was there. You may have thought it was a screwy logic, but it was there. Right. But it was <laughs> and, consistent. It was consistent. In this one, there's not enough to tell me that it was consistent or that she viewed it as consistent. She she, definitely seemed to view it as a personal thing.
0: Yeah, and she obviously viewed it as inconsistent because her question the whole time was why did it take God three days? Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. if God's omniscient, why couldn't he have stopped it? You know, right Mm -hmm. up front. Yes. And actually... if Check me on this, but if I'm reading the opening paragraph right, we never find out how long the friend has been tied up. Did it take this, God three days that time, or uh, was it faster? Point,
1: <laughs> this is a very good point. And I mean, you could argue that three days is, is a particularly, you know, okay, sort of like, you know, three days of the resurrection kind of thing. Is that what that's supposed to be? We don't know. Is, is there supposed to be a significance to the fact that it's three days?
0: Right, right. Um,
1: so as you say, we don't have we don't have a sense as to how long the friend has been there. But but more than that, um there's also I thought at first it was going to be a commentary on I don't quite want to say free will, but her question was why did God wait three days? And then at the end, there was this this thing about her basically doing the same thing to her friend who loves her, mm-hmm. loved her, and she loved that, um, which her husband did to her. And her her complaint as well was also you know why also was why did her husband do these things to her? Because one of the things that he did was to, um, well, she was pregnant, and and he took a knife to her womb, for example. Mm-hmm. So so there's a very definite sense that. Um, and, and, and you're gonna have to help me here, as you say he he
0: he snapped you say well i okay, I used the word snapped, and even as I was saying it, I was like that might not be fair well okay yeah this this is the hard thing because you never do kind of i mean it's all alluded to more than stated mm-hmm. what happened there
1: so you don't understand why the husband did it, and you don't understand um you don't understand why there were three days as well. So I thought at first it was leading up to some kind of epiphany about why the husband did it and why there was a wait of three days. For example, did the husband, as you say, really snap? Was it the case of he had been tortured at some point or whatever and this was his way of getting God's attention? Was it going to be a commentary on, on free will and God waiting three days because he's hoping that the husband will relent at some point? I couldn't. I was waiting for something there. In in terms
0: of of going back on that actual theological question,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it didn't happen. Okay, and I think so. I can see where it would be frustrating on that reading, but I think the second paragraph. Now that I'm looking at it again, mm-hmm. I ended up. Yeah, so I'm quoting now. I ended up here because I was Rebecca's only friend. As such, I used to clean up after her half-hearted suicide attempts, blood from shallow wrist cuts, regurgitated benzos and vodka. Torn out overhead light sockets and door jams that wouldn't hold her weight. She would call me in the wee early, in the wee hours of the morning, get over here, help me. I tried again, I screwed up, and I would go over there to nurse her and hug her again and again. What was I supposed to do? Um, I wanted to tell her to do something radical, <laughs> jump from the west Bridge, throw herself in front of a train, just get it over with. But I didn't have the heart. I don't know why I remained her friend. It's not like I got anything out of it. It was the worst kind of friendship held together by pity. Mm-hmm. I have a person in my life that I've been in that position for, oh. and so I think this hit me on a more a more deeply emotional level. Okay, yeah. And that that paragraph sums up so much of what I felt at times with that person. Mm. Um. So yeah, I think that's that's probably why. And I hadn't even consciously took that on board. Uh That's why it was impressing me so much. You know, I was thinking much more about once I finished the story, I was like the twist and the Ted Chang and this, that, and the other. But just that, I think, really um, hit me where I lived.
1: Okay, okay. Well, when you mentioned that paragraph, that last line of that paragraph, it was the worst kind of friendship held together by pity. Mm -hmm. And then counter it with the last lines. I love you, I said. I know, she said. Um... I think I think that was that was another um, sort of strike against for me, because then I wasn't even
0: really convinced of the love. No, and and again I can understand the ambiguity. I mm-hmm. I've, I have lived that ambiguity, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So it became it became less about because because um, there've been that these points with that person where I'm like seriously just if you're gonna do something do something just get it over with and on the other hand i do love this person deeply so yeah you know yeah. it's like, oh no I've, I've lived it i, I I've, I've been there
1: but that but what you've raised just now is a very important point i've been talking the whole time about how this collection in many ways is evocative uh-huh and here i am trying to impose on it the structure of a ted chang story which in many ways is, is very, as I said, it has its internal logic and it keeps the internal logic. But if I let go of that sense of, oh, this story has to have internal logic and it's supposed to give me an answer according to that logic by the end, then I can recognize that what it has done and done very successfully is give you the portrayal of a troubled relationship, a troubled friendship, where one person is on the road to self-destruction and the other one is, is trying their best to hold the other person
0: back. Right, and is unfortunately getting uh, dragged along on that that path of self destruction.
1: Yes, yes, because you know you almost wonder what does this mean now? Is this now a cycle? Is this friend survivor now going to go and try and kill herself? You know, because of what she has experienced, and and, and then it kind of just the this, this cycle continues. The cycle of of abuse and and then self harm continues. It's it's a little it's a little scary it's a little creepy.
0: It's very is creepy, it, and, and is then, it almost suggesting to you that you need to back away from certain toxic things? <laughs> I know because it really does call into question. It's like you think you're helping, and and you know where's where can this go? Where can this drag you? Um, but the other the other thing is I've been talking this whole time about how distanced and distancing all the narrative is. And yet, obviously, this, this story hit me on an emotional it's level. It's snuck was, under your guard. I was <laughs> barely conscious of. So, you know, there's that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I did think it was a very powerful story. Even Even as I questioned it, mm-hmm. even as I felt some dissatisfaction, I recognized the
0: power of the story. But you, you promised us after we talked about Rebecca, which one, which one would, would wind up on your Hugo ballot?
1: Well, I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name right, but who is Arvid Peckham?
0: That was the other story <laughs> that has a star on my list. I, I adore this story so much. Just be I honest. loved it. I just loved it. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. It's so beautifully uh, surreal. It is. It's so classically it, surreal. It's like it's like Kafka really it it's is. just it's exactly Kafka it felt so european <laughs>
1: Um and when I and, and that one this
0: one for me was
1: oh I don't even want to say it was the standout of the of the, seat, of the collection because that that almost puts an unbearable weight on it it was a standout for me
0: Right right to, and, oh, and the same true. thing I'm not putting on the Hugo ballot I don't think it quite is up to that level but on the level it's at it's so perfect
1: i yeah i'm well you know i'm I'm not in a position to judge Hugo Ballots. i think because again you read far more short fiction than i do and you have a far better sense of 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 what is what is that what is at certain levels but <sighs> wait a minute let's talk about what is in the short yes, story. Let,
0: let, let us let
1: us summarize uh, over to you <laughs> So, okay. Um, The first thing is that I used to be a bureaucrat. So there's something about this depiction of a government office, which is taking calls. And they don't ever really say what the office does, um, what department or what ministry it's in or, or anything like that. They're just these three operators, day shift, ancient switchboard. So you're almost getting 1950s feels from it. And, um, and, they're just, and they're just taking these calls, and it's very bizarre, because you, you, you start to, to see these strange calls coming in from a Miss Sycorax. Now, when I saw the name Sycorax, something pinged in my head. So I went to little Google, uh-huh. and then I was reminded this is actually from Shakespeare. The, the witch that you never quite see in The Tempest. Uh-huh. So so this is kind of cool because what you have is a scenario of um, a a person on the other end of the line who you don't see, who is talking, but who appears to have some very, very strange effects on a very mundane world. So, you know, previously you have um inquiries coming in like um half a second let me give us one i somebody calls in to check what happens with their unemployment insurance oh one moment pause this office is a little creepier than i thought this is a government agency that seems to be taking calls for a broader range of
0: government departments. Oh yeah, I got the I got a kind of outsourcing vibe on this that they just pretend yes. to be whatever agency people think they're calling. Yes. So I, I should have mentioned
1: that. So they're already accustomed to almost like putting on a particular personality or scenario or or or, or, or um, voice. Yeah. Depending on, um, the person's query as they call in. So, you know, somebody calls to ask about their fee, in it, and he's the Gothenburg Unemployment Insurance Office for that purpose. Right. Uh, and um, he changes his voice. He yeah. actually, Arvid, who is the one of the um, operators on the switchboard, changes his voice according to um, the caseworker or the person that the um, caller is expecting to hear. Right. So now that we've established that slight creepiness in the office what happens is that a Miss Sycorax calls and she says very, very sweetly, I would like to be put through to my dead mother. So at first Arvid is kind of like, what? What's going on? <laughs> so he stops and he, he puts on the the um the mute switch and he thinks and then he goes on and all of a sudden this voice comes out of his mouth. Hello. And he says this is the voice of her mother and he's just talking and, and, the, and the conversation just comes out and, and he can't stop it. And you know, he's like, okay, this is, this is a little too much. And he, when the call finishes, he, he gets out of the office and, and um, just sort of tries to, to flee from a moment from that situation, okay? So then the next day, and uh, the, whole, the whole office scenario is very mundane. He's, he's there, you know, he's having coffee and cake with his colleagues and, you know, everything's going fine, no problem, no problem. And the, counter, and, uh, and the cake isn't even very good, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> and uh, and even things like you know they're talking about how it is that they come to work in this place where they're putting on these voices, one of them what was it um so one of them used to be a stage actor someone somebody else was a ventriloquist, somebody else used to work on book audio tapes, so so you know they they've all they've all come to this place because they can imitate voices and so forth. And then Miss Sycorax calls again. I want to be connected to the Beetle King. <laughs> <laughs> and Arvid's like, I see. And he mutes it again and he's like, what's going on? And his colleagues are all involved and stuff. And then, and then he starts off... So <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to read this because it cracked me up. Miss, I'm afraid I really can't connect you to anybody by the name of Hello, my little pupa. <laughs>
0: Now, if we were ever to do an audio play, this would be a story to do an audio play of.
1: They, partly, they filmed it. Apparently, they're either planning to film it or they're going to film it. But again, this thing just takes over his identity and his voice, and he is the Beetle King talking to Miss Cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets a little worse because you know, as they have their conversation, they you know she starts talk about sending sending um beetles to. Um, this This old corner store she doesn't like or or this other old um, man that she doesn't like and and what happens is that after Arvid finishes the call he 's thoroughly spooked. He then finds out by word of mouth that oh you know um it, there's there's a, a bug invasion in the old town and and and, and sort of like because, so it 's not just that Miss Sycorax is pulling these voices out of Arvid, but they seem to be having effects mm-hmm. in the world.
0: And he starts finding more bugs around his own office.
1: Yes, yes. And then finally she calls and she says, I want to be put through to Arvid Pecon." And that's him. And he, you know, flicks the mute switch and he comes back and his voice is the one that starts speaking with her. But he blacks out. He's been speaking to her for an hour according to his colleagues and he can't remember what he said. So he's completely freaked out by this time because this now is completely... This has come right to his 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 actual self this is this is not somebody taking over his voice this is his own voice that's been pulled out of him and we're talking full-on hitchcock twilight zone everything oh, yeah. you know instead, i'm just like mm, and i I could see this thing so vividly and then and then he goes and tries to talk to his manager yes <laughs> <laughs> and he's practically like you know um, you know, Miss Sycorax, you know, this this isn't this isn't right. This isn't this isn't normal. And the manager's like, Yeah, maybe you're having a nervous breakdown. We'll, you know, get you an appointment with a doctor and you know, go home for a bit and whatever we'll and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then then he decides he's going to call Miss Sycorax. And, you know, the answer is hello, yes. Mm-hmm. He finally says, Okay, this is the operator, and she was like, Oh, and he says, okay, well, well, who's this Arbid Peckon you wanted to be put through to? And Miss Sikorak starts laughing and says, oh, yeah, oh, well, that funny name, um, there's no Arbid Peckon. He's like, yes, there is. He said, she said, I don't know who there is. And I, I thought there was, but then, then I realized I was mistaken. So poor Arbid, thoroughly spooked, disconnects, tears off the phone headset, and he's screaming, I'm right here, I'm right here. And he bangs his fist on the desk. And something crackled. He looks down at his hand. His hand is in shards on the desk. His arm shudders and explodes in a cloud of dust. And his two colleagues, a little later, go, oh, where did Arvid go? Who? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, oh, yeah, I, I don't know what I was saying. Oh, I'm coffee break. I'm shortbread is here. Yeah, okay. And that's that.
0: That's, that. that's the end.
1: <laughs> and, and there's this, there's something about that story. You, can't, you cannot claim that it's got any huge philosophy beyond perhaps the age-old question of who are we really, <laughs> the existential dread, as it were. Um, you, you could even perhaps, if you really wanted to, to go full-on English lit, tie that in with the unimaginable drudgery of bureaucracy and being in a 9-to-5 in a, a job that you hate and what that does for your identity. But basically, it's just this thoroughly creepy story about someone who is there one moment and
0: gone the next. And And, and I to, love it. Yeah, I love it. And to me it's the the epitome of the intersection between the mundane and the fantastic. It's the most mundane and the most fantastic. Yeah. The there, most mundane thing you can do is be a, a call center operator in a government bureaucracy. <laughs> that is yes. the definition of mundane, right? And the most At- the most fantastic you can be is this kind of mythic witch literary figure who can make things change with just a whim. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: It's just a beautiful, beautiful little thing.
1: And and the touches in it, I mean, we summarized it because, of course, you have to be reading it yourself to really get the full impact, but... The little touches, the little touches like, you know, the cake that doesn't really taste that good and the coffee breaks and, the, you know. The manager
0: who asked for the crossword puzzle.
1: Yes, you and know. That was the other, the other thing. Is, just,
0: oh. It just piles like
1: banality on top of banality. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just gorgeous. And, 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 it, and, it, and it, has that, it has that amazing effect precisely because you're taking, as it were, the most mundane, the most commonplace. And you're letting it rub up against something that is completely inexplicable. Have you inexplicable. ever
0: seen the Twilight Zone episode with Bill Shatner? The one in the airplane? Oh, with the
1: gremlins on the wing? the one on the wing. I know about it. I don't think I've actually seen it. I think I've
0: read more about it than I've actually <laughs> exactly. seen it. Exactly. It's one of those stories that's iconic, again, even if you haven't seen it, just because of... And it's got that same flair. It's that the most mundane thing, riding mm-hmm. in, a businessman riding in an airplane... And the most randomly fantastic thing, exactly. But Twilight Zone was really good for that oh, kind yeah, of. Twilight Zone was new weird before new weird was cool. <laughs> yeah, 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 and
1: and and it and really it it just it was it was so funny when I was reading the story I just automatically envisaged it in black and white. It was
0: that strong
1: of an association.
0: Wow. Okay, I didn't quite go that far, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, lots of shades of gray. You know, mm-hmm. just the, the you know the the American thing of the nineteen fifties is a man in the gray flannel suit. You know. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Oh. So um. So yeah, I I have to go and hunt up the link somewhere. Maybe we could put it in our show notes. Mm-hmm. But there is a link with either the trailer. I think the trailer of this story, which is being filmed. Oh, excellent. Um, I do not know if the. The full film, the full short is out. It should be by now because I I think that when I saw that it may have been back in August or so. Oh wow! That's the last year, so it may it may be completed by now. I should definitely follow that up so that we can go and have a look and see if they've done it justice. Yeah,
0: definitely. <laughs> and also, uh, if if it is a short film, to see if um, to to get some word out if um, if it's eligible for the Hugo ballot this year.
1: Ah, very good point. Very good point. Yes, yes, yes.
0: Normally, knows we have to have something on the ballot on the short form ballot as well as uh, Doctor Who, right? <laughs> I am not saying a word. <laughs> yes, it's a little and more diverse. If Paul diverse is thing. listening, we love you, Paul. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, it's even sweeter to win when you have more competitors.
0: Right, right, exactly.
1: There you go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so so um you know, so wrapping up uh, uh Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck, I think we both, you know, felt very highly about this about this collection. I certainly uh I think it deserves the awards that it has won and hopefully will win. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um yeah, I would it's,
1: f- sorry. No, I was gonna say and it's definitely the kind of work that you you want to see what she's gonna produce next.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's actually astonishing to me to think that this is a debut collection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the only possible criticism I have of it is that it it can be it can feel, especially in the middle, like a little one note.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Some of the some of the shorter ones, particularly, are very, very much just a little. It's almost like a little image, a little
0: a little scene embellish and not right. really feeling like a full short story. Right, and then on to the next. And, and mm. there are a few in a row that have kind of the same... a, 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 a tone or a style or, or feeling that it's like, oh, this is quite a bit like the last one. Yeah, um,
1: as if an idea is being worked over in different directions.
0: A little bit, yeah. But, but generally speaking, I mean, you know, the things that she does in this collection, she does extremely well. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and and it does build. I mean, it builds so it well. It its conclusion,
1: and and that to me, I mean, l- let's be let's be honest. I don't have your experience in terms of the short story collections, but I so appreciated how these stories were arranged. Yeah, yeah, because it gave you that feeling of it's almost like a complete novel where you had to keep going because you were sensing that build.
0: It, that tripped over for me after. Uh, actually, I think after Arvid Peckham Okay. After that point, I was like, I just had to keep reading. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. and our, and and the Arvid Peckham is about is almost exactly halfway through.
1: That is a good point. Yeah, almost halfway through. Yeah.
0: So, um, but yeah. So, honestly, uh, for anybody who's still listening to us who hasn't read it yet, for <laughs> one, God save you, and for two, go out and read it now. Yes, absolutely. And there were there were some that we didn't even mention
1: by name. We didn't mention. Um, Miss Nyberg and I, Cloudberry Jam, we, we kind of briefly to about Pirate and British Hall with the uh, village. We didn't get into the details of that. Obviously, the, the ones that we mentioned, are the ones that stood out more for us. But there are some strong themes, even in the ones that we didn't mention. Mm-hmm. So you know, by no means believe that if a story wasn't mentioned, that it was substandard or anything of that. Of yeah, that nature.
0: Pirate would be would, would also be high on my list. I enjoyed that quite a bit, and I love the um, the slightly different form of it.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. I think Pirate is destined to be in Van Demire's the anthology. Which they're one? having the, the best jury? The um the A to Z. Oh, okay, cool. Which is why it's a P. So it's oh. like, that's why it's got it's that format, like an encyclopedia entry.
0: Oh, okay, that makes sense. Excellent.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. That's it, yes. So, my goodness, let's see. So, next week, if we're wrapping up Jagannath, next week we'll be talking about Starmaker by old Stapledon. That is correct. Okay, so I hope uh, people will join us for that. Starmaker is available if you uh either you can buy a Dover edition which is bundled with Last and First Men or um it is available out there uh on the internet uh for those who care to go looking although it is not necessarily legal for everybody on every country so check carefully <laughs> uh-huh. um but yeah so hopefully in a, in 2 weeks we'll be back at uh in this very spot talking about um something from something completely different from the 1930s excellent Ah, cool. Okay. So, until then, take care. Indeed, thank you very
1: much.